Good morning. How are we all doing? Good. If you've got a Bible, we're going to Luke 19. I quoted the wrong passage of scripture in um, session one. So we're going to Luke 19. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn there. Um, We're going to read and then see where we go. Okay. Reading from verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there was there by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Back when we were first living in Uganda, about nine, ten years ago, we, um, we had an office that was almost in the same compound as the local village school. And when we moved to live in Uganda, we decided that we wanted to live like in a mist and amongst the people we'd gone there to love and to serve, right? And so we were living in this little African community on the edge of Kampala City, and there were no other Westerners for a good 10 miles, bar one person at that time. She'd been there for a very, very long time. And, um, but apart from that, there was nobody else. And so we, we didn't really have much choice except say to the kids, well, this is the school you're going to go to. But it would also have been our intention There was a lot of missionaries living in the city and a lot of expats, but they all kind of congregated in a different kind of section of the city, like literally the opposite side, and you could get there in 20 minutes if the traffic wasn't bad, or two hours if the traffic was bad. But it didn't make any sense to me. didn't make any sense to move somewhere to decide to love and serve a community and give your life for them, but at the same time decide not to live amongst them. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. It just seemed a bit weird. And so we moved to live in this community, and and we said to our kids, well, you're going to go to the local African school and kind of threw them in there, you know, like, good luck, off you go. And they did really, really well. And it 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 was an interesting season. They definitely received an education. I say not of the academic kind, more of an, you know, like an education of life, but I'm grateful for what it taught them, and it's made them who they are today, and I love who my kids are, so that's all good. When we'd been in Uganda about six months, the very first six months, we came back to the UK uh, for a little break and to kind of check in with our sending churches, just to let them know how we were getting on and what the Lord had said and what our long-term vision was. And, and we went to this church one Sunday morning and the pastor had said to me before the meeting, this morning, Nicola, I'm going to like in the middle between the worship and stuff, I'm going to get you up and I'm going to just like interview you and just ask you what it is that you've learned about yourself, you know, and about God in the last six months. I'm like, great, that's a great idea. Happy to do that. He called our family up. He interviewed my husband. He interviewed me, and everything seemed to be going really, really well until he gave the microphone to my son. And my son was 10 years old, and he handed in the microphone, and he said to him, James, tell me, what is it that you've learned in these first six months of living in Africa? 
And he's kind of looking at him all earnestly and expecting this very spiritual child, this you know, son of a missionary, to give him a very spiritual response. This is what my son said. He lifted his head up high, he held the microphone, and at the top of his voice he says, what I've learned is how to castrate a cow and how many goats I need for a good wife. And of course the whole place starts to laugh. I'm like, oh my goodness. And the pastor's looking like, how do I do now? But to James, this was fantastic news. This was a really important piece of information that was going to help him in his future. Um, so that was fun. He, we, were, we were in the rainy season once and it was crazy rains. The rains were more than they normally were. And we had this kind of issue with flooding, you know. And one of our communities, is, our slums, is built in a swamp. And I was being quite distressed one evening because I'd been there and the floodwaters were just washing houses and children away. And anyway, I was very distressed. And I was talking to my husband. And my son walks in. And he's like listening. You know how kids do. They listen to everything you say, whether you want them to or not. And he's listening. And then he says, Mom, it's all okay. Like, relax. Chill out. It's all going to be fine. It's just female rain. I'm like, it's just what? It's just female rain. I said, what are you talking about, James? He says, you know, Mom, the two types of rain. We've been learning about them at school. I'm like, no, I don't know about the two types of rain, James. Tell me about this. He said, well, you know those raindrops that are really, really big? They're really big, and like when the rain comes down, it's strong, and it comes hard, and it comes fast, and it makes an impact, and it floods everywhere. That's male rain. I said, oh, okay. And he said, and then you know those little tiny raindrops, those little teeny ones that just kind of float down, and they don't really do anything, and they're kind of not really very much, but they just keep coming. I said, yes. He said, that's female rain. <laughs> I was there, I feel my inner feminist rising. I'm like, sit down, son. Let's have a conversation. You know, Let's talk about this. It was fun. But we learned all sorts of things, and they had an interesting education, and, and it was a fantastic school. It was a brilliant school, actually, and some of the teachers were, I mean, they, they were just amazing. And I'm really grateful for the education that my kids got when they went to that school in all sorts of ways. They actually received an, an excellent academic education at the side, just with a few tweaks every now and then, particularly when it came to men and female reign. But the point of the story is that our office was next to the school. <laughs> and one day, one of Chantal's teachers, because we were in and out all the time, you know, and we used the health center for our children who were sick, and she came up to me and she said, oh, Nicola, I wondered if I could ask you about something. We have this young guy, he's my nephew, he lives in a far out village, and he has got himself caught up in gang culture. He's become a drug addict and an alcoholic and he's getting mixed up in a life of crime and I'm really concerned for him and I'm, my fear is that if I don't remove him from the situation that he's in, that he's going to end up either dead or in prison. And I was like, wow, that's really hard. And she's like, yeah, so I'm going to move him to the city but I need, to give him a, I need to find him a job and I wondered if you'd like to give him one. So I said to her, sure, I'll give him a job. He can come work for me. So he came, and you know, we went stupid. We put all the safeguarding things in place that needed to be in place, and he had to partner with someone, and we had all our you know, protection measures in there. But he came, and um, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> the first few years were a bit bumpy as this young man began to work out how to be part of our family and our ministry, you know, and he, he, he took a long time to begin to change. 
And we hit frustration after frustration and every bit of behavior that we perceived as not acceptable, we challenged and we challenged it hard. And sometimes that felt like it was on an hourly basis and it went on for week after week after month after month, you know, and people in the community would come say, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time on this young man? Why haven't you just written him off? He's no good. He'll never change. He'll never come to anything. What are you doing with him? It's ridiculous. Get rid of him. Throw him away. We couldn't do that. See, because every time I looked in the eyes of this young man, all I could see when I looked at him was just this potential for greatness. All I could see was something very special. These God-given gifts and calling and ability that was all there on the inside of him, just hidden away. That's what I could see. I can't give up on that. We always say in our ministry that we believe that everybody, it doesn't matter whether you're born in a slum or a palace, that's just geography. Everybody is born with God-given potential and gifts and skills and the abilities on the inside of them, everybody. And all we see our job as is to simply come alongside some of those people in very broken places and say, we see it in you. We're going to call it out of you and we're going to walk life with you and help mine for it and help see that gold. That's what we simply call it. We just call it gold. To see that gold come to the service. And that's what we did with this young man. See, the thing is, is that gold, that God-given potential is always there. It may be buried deeper in some people, maybe, than it is in others, but it's always there. And it was in this young man. And we gave ourselves to this mining process to see the gold in his life come to the surface. And, and it took time, but slowly after the months and the years went by, we began to see that gold rise as the dirt of pain and rejection and addiction began to just fall away and he actually began to shine. And love began to heal his very wounded soul. And it wasn't always easy. You know, I'm just being really honest, it was not always easy. He'd come into work high or he'd nick stuff out of my bag again. And I'd be like, oh, <laughs> I want to hug you and slap you all at the same time. <laughs> it wasn't always easy. Sometimes loving him was very much a choice we had to make over our emotions. But love came. The love of Jesus came in. And it began to work on the inside of him. And it brought him to this place of healing and wholeness and peace. And he started going back to school. He put himself into university. Someone sponsored him who'd come, a visitor from the UK. And, and he, he came out of university with a brilliant um, degree in social work. He's now, nine years later, still on our staff team. He's one of the best social workers that we have. And he is able to go into you know, the congregation of men outside the brothel or into the bar or wherever it is. He's able to go out to these really messy, crazy places and stand alongside these people, understanding what it is that they're in and knowing how they need to walk out of it and have this empathy with them that, of course, I could never have. He's amazing. And so that's what he does every day. He gives his life to go and stand alongside these people and walk with them into the same freedom that he himself has received. And it's stunning and it's beautiful. Is he perfect? No. <laughs> Sometimes I think he's still very far from it. But he's brilliant. I'm so proud of him. He's my son, and I love him. But going back to this story in, in John 4, he had Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus, he wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't an alcoholic, right? But he did lead a fairly corrupt lifestyle. And 
tax collectors were considered to be fairly evil and crooked people. It was the kind of job that attracted like the least reputable, most corrupt people in society. Their job was to go to the people and collect the taxes owed on behalf of Rome. And what they would do in, in kind of boost their salary or to make their salary is they would take the money that was owed and then maybe double or triple or quadruple on top to line their own pockets. And that kind of gathering collection process was very unregulated. It was very aggressive, potentially very violent and quite dangerous. And so you can understand why tax collectors weren't really liked by the people. And Zacchaeus... He wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. There would not have been a lot of love in the hearts of the people for Zacchaeus. And he would have been seen as nothing short of a traitor to his own people. That's how they saw him. That's what they saw when they looked at him. But what about Jesus? What did Jesus see when he looked at Zacchaeus? Did he see a man who was just doing loads of things that were just really wrong? Of course he did. Did he, Jesus understand how Zacchaeus would have been perceived by his fellow man? Absolutely he would have done. But Jesus also saw a side of Zacchaeus that the other people didn't see. He saw this potential for greatness. He saw how desperate Zacchaeus was to see him, that he climbed a tree. You know, he climbs up a tree and he's dangling in the branches just to get a glimpse. Jesus saw that. He saw that. And so then he does this, the most unbelievable thing in the eyes of the people of Jericho. And he shouts as he walks past. He's walking down. He sees him in the tree. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come quick. I need to come and move into your house. I need to come to your home today. And the people are shocked, aren't they? And they're offended. See, there would have been many more religious people in town that Jesus could have gone and stayed in their home with. There would have been many Pharisees around, probably a priest or a Levite or two. But Jesus didn't choose to go and stay at their house. He chose to go to Zacchaeus' house. I love that. But the people witnessing the conversation, they're shocked, they are offended, and they start saying, you know, what's going on? He's going to be the guest of a sinner? Like, what is Jesus doing? Is he out of his mind? Does he not understand who this person is? We need to go tell Jesus a few things about this man. They can't understand it. And through this very public and bold act of love and demonstration of this incredible kindness and grace and mercy of who God is. And through a statement that swung in the face of crowds and of religion and what that was dictating to, to the world as acceptable behavior, Jesus shows a depth of compassion and love and mercy to Zacchaeus, that to me is nothing short of stunning. It's just stunning. And it not only is stunning to me and to us as we read it, but it, it penetrated right into the depths of Zacchaeus' heart. You can read it and it begins to bring about a transformation. And there's something so powerful, very, very simple, but so powerful and profound about this story that if we can just grasp hold of it, or allow it to grasp hold of us. 
I believe it could bring about that same kind of transformation in our own lives and the lives of everyone that we come into contact with as individuals, but also as a church. See, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Isn't that beautiful? The message translation says it like this, and I utterly love this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Huh. I was like, yes, when I read that. See, that's what he does. That's who he is. He's not the sort of God who is kind of distant, you know, standing at the sidelines, like observing everyone and issuing judgments and commands from a kind of remote, far-flung, distant place. He's the kind of God who chooses to move in. He's the kind of God who comes into our neighborhood. He gets up close and personal. He's God with us. He is Emmanuel. It's who he is. And it changes everything. Love came into the world. Love moved in to the world and it changed everything forever. On a massive scale. For all of eternity. It's beautiful. See, it's interesting to me in this story that Jesus didn't call Zacchaeus down from the tree, give him a good talking to about his very sinful life, demand a change, and then require some kind of walking out period before he chose to move in with him. He didn't require any of that. He just said, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to hang out with you. In his incredible grace and mercy and love, he chose to come close to Zacchaeus even in the midst of his shame and sin. And the impact on his life is, is, is instant because he responds, doesn't it look like here and now I give half of my sessions to the poor and if I've stolen anything from anyone, I'll pay it back four times. It just begins this process of transformation. That is the power of love. That is the power of grace, of inclusion, of acceptance, of kindness, of mercy, That is the power of that invitation that he is issuing on a daily basis of just come, come as you are. So what about us is my question. As we're looking at, you know, here we are, 22 years. What what about us, Ellsbury Vineyard? Where is it that we are called to do the same? Jesus modeled to us a life in which we are called to follow right? Where are we called to do the same? Where is it that we're called to move in, both as an an individual, on an individual level, but also as a family? Where is it we are called to follow in the example of Jesus? Where is it that we are called to go and be selfless as he is selfless, to love as he is loved, to sacrifice as he sacrificed, to give as he gave, to lay our life down daily for everybody as he did? to identify with the poor and the broken and the lost and the marginalized. Where are we called to do that? When we were first looking at moving back to the UK, we'd been living in Africa for many years. We'd gone out from Bath to Africa. We'd come from Africa to Ellsbury. We didn't know anybody here. And we were looking for a church to connect with the moment we arrived in the country. And so I was searching on the internet and I found all the churches in Ellsbury. And so from Kampala, I wrote to everybody. We're a little missionary family. We're coming back. I have two kids who have no idea what teenage culture is, but they're 16 and 12. (laughs) They're going to need some help. It's a big thing, moving back. Reverse culture shock is quite challenging. 
And I didn't hear back from anyone except from, from Steve and Lynn. And I got this email, beautiful email. It was within about an hour of me sending mine. I couldn't believe it. Just like, wow, you're so welcome. What can we do for you? Do you need help to find a house? Do you need help navigating the school system? What do you need? How can we help you? And I was like, who are these people? We used to never get post because it was always stolen. But we didn't ever get post. Again, it's expensive to send post. And one day we get a phone call to say there's post for us at the PO box we had in the city. And so we jump in the car and there's all this post from Ellsbury Vineyard. And we're like, who are these people that they don't, they've never met us? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? I remember our first, the day we landed here, we'd flown out of Uganda. It was 35 degrees. It was very hot. We had flip-flops and shorts and T-shirts on all of us. We didn't even own shoes because we didn't need them. And we arrived into the UK to snow. And so it was like, oh my goodness. And we got picked up and then brought to this house that we didn't know and this town that we didn't know. And we kind of get in the front door and we're overwhelmed and we're stressed and we're tired and emotional and in reverse culture shock. And I'm saying, Simon, we've got to get some food. We don't have any food. And I just, I don't, know what, I don't know how to do this. I don't, know how, I don't even know if I'm up or down. And then there's a knock at the door. And it was Steve and Lynn with this massive parcel of food. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. It just, I shut the door and I just wept. I'm like, who are these people that they would love us like this? And that's been our experience here in this church that you love well. You love well. And there is a heart of love and compassion in this family that's beautiful. But what we've also discovered over the last few years is this heart of love and compassion, you don't keep it just for yourselves. In this meeting context, you're always trying to give it away. It's beautiful. And we've watched over the last five years, these different projects grow. Some have, some have grown, some have been birthed. You know, the storehouse projects, tasty teas, make lunch, food banks, furniture stores, grow baby all sorts of things happening, reaching out to the community and to the poor and to the broken and then beginning to reach out further than just our own national borders, you know, with refugee compassion beginning up and just the heart of Becky and Richard to just drive that forward. It's just stunningly beautiful. It's not hard to see how you love and how you serve as individuals and as a church family here. I'm not saying we're not doing it, but what I am saying is, and what more should we be doing? What's next, Aylesbury Vineyard? For the next 22 years, where is the Lord taking us? How can we love more? How can we serve more? How can we give more? How can we give everything of ourselves away? Just as Jesus did. And so my question is really for us as individuals as well as to us as a family, because it works on both levels, right? What is it the Lord is calling you to? Who are the people? What's the neighborhood? What's the person? Maybe it's just the one that he's calling you to, to say, I see you. I see you. I see the potential of God in your life. I see the beauty of who you could be, and I'm going to give myself to walk with you, however long it takes. Maybe it's more than a person. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a street. Maybe it's the whole community where you live. Maybe it's this town. Maybe it's the nation. I don't know. Jesus does. So I just wanted to throw the challenge out this morning. Are we prepared to say, okay, once again, Jesus, here I am. Here is my little life. Everything that I have just offered to you for your kingdom purpose.